Hi, it's Dvar Kresniansky from Adayat, and, and we're having another talk in our Shidduch U, Shidduch University series. And I'm really grateful to you, Freda Kaplan, all the way from Israel, to be talking about this important aspect of Shidduchim, how our attachment styles really impact our dating and really impact our marriage. So, Freda, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in Shidduchim and, and just in general. So, I work, so I'm a therapist. And I work with individuals, couples, and families. That's what I do mostly. I work, most of that work I do in Hebrew with Israelis. And I work as a dating coach and a therapist um, over Zoom with Americans. So I get to, you know, speak to most of the people that I work with in Israel are actually non-religious people. And, you know, obviously you're going to see a very different type of um, dating the rules of dating are different. Expectations of dating are different. And then, you know, what, uh, when I speak to, you know, young boys and girls who are in the shidduch process and, you know, who are going and are struggling through dating. And what's interesting is that, you know, if I, if I, I always like to look at the unifying factor between all people, what all people are essentially looking for in relationships. And this is actually something that um, led me that I'm trained now as an EFT therapist, which is emotion focused therapy, where essentially you see, it doesn't matter what a person's background is. It doesn't matter male or female, everybody's looking for connection and everyone is looking for attachment. So the, what I'm hearing then is that the humanness is really what's most important. It's not as matter what background they're coming from the secular or the, from in America or from in Israel. It's really all about attachments, all about relationships. So what really stood out for me that it's interesting that since the 80s, um, you know, attachment theory really started out as a theory looking at the connection between infants and their adult caregivers, primarily the mother. Most of the focus on the early research in um, attachment theory was done with mothers and the, the effect of mothers on young infants and how that attachment, whether it was secure or insecure, would affect the child throughout the lifespan. And then in the 80s, there started to be a focus on attachment theory, not only as an infant, you know, adult caregiver slash mother connection, but also looking at the, the primary need for all humans to really have attachment in their life at any point of the lifespan, or you know what Balbi like to say, from the cradle to the grave. So all of a sudden, in the '80s, they started looking at attachment theory between adults. You know, in the adult romantic relationship, you know, or what we're talking about in you know in a marriage, in a healthy marriage. And I think what's very interesting is that actually, when you look in the Tyra and you look in Chomesh Boratius, it talks about very clearly how it says how, you know, and, and uh, that a man has to leave his mother and his father. And the Torah uses a very, very strong language. Like he must cleave to his wife. He, not only he must be close to her, but really the strongest level of language. And, you know, for me, I look at that as something where the Torah all, you know, all the way back in Beresh is telling us that 
a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage is 100% based on attachment. You know, we didn't have to wait till the 80s, 1980s for modern science to come around and say, you know, adult romantic relationships are all about healthy attachment. You're actually looking at the tarot telling you, if you want to have that healthy relationship, the same attachment that you had when you were in, or that you sought, that you hoped to have in your parents' home, it's the need for it doesn't end when you leave your parents' home. In order for you to start a new, a new home and to build a new home, you need to leave your parents' home and recreate that same level of attachment with your wife. And then ultimately, once you do that with your wife, then when there's that healthy relationship between the husband and the wife, they can then model that for their children. But 100%, it starts between the husband and the wife, and it's something that needs to be nurtured throughout, you know, the couple's relationship. It doesn't, it's not something that's just to focus on, you know, Shana Rishona or something like that. So when we say attachment, so that's the word that they're using, they call it attachment theory. What is... Could you describe a little bit more about that attachment is or what another word for attachment so I can really, if this is a new term for somebody, what are we talking about? So attachment and what's interesting when we talk about attachment is that the needs are actually, obviously it would look different in the infant caregiver relationship, you know, between the mother and the infant and the husband and wife relationship, but actually the basic needs remain the same. And, you know, I, I would also like to talk about what it looks like when those needs are not met and essentially they're the same behavior. So again, it would look different in a child and in an adult, but they're actually the same behaviors. So what secure attachment looks like, what it looks like is number one, accessibility. So that doesn't mean that, you know, a mother, let's say, you know, and a father would have to be 24 seven with their child, but they would have to be accessible. The child would have to have a sense that my parents are accessible to me when I need them and not only accessible, but also responsive so that when a child turns to their parents and essentially, you know, there's a, are you there for me when I need you? That's essentially the question um, that's answered. And then there's that emotional and physical caregiving. That's what attachment looks like, you know, healthy, secure attachment between parents and children. And then the same exact thing, actually, that as much as we would like to think that we grow up and we become independent and we're not reliant on anyone, we now see and we understand so much that actually adults are looking for the exact same thing in their marriages, essentially. So we want accessibility. We want to be able to ask our spouse, will you be there for me when I need you? And obviously we want the type of response. So we want that accessibility, responsiveness. So not only that you're, you're there for me and you're sitting at the table and we're both on our phones. No, there would be this responsiveness where I get the feeling that my emotional needs are met. And then obviously the emotional and physical caregiving. And what's obviously unique about the adult romantic relationship is that you would also have the element of physical intimacy, which is exclusive to the adult romantic relationship. So, you know, in a child parent relationship, you would have hugs and kisses, which is such an important part 
of a child's um, sense of attachment. You know, that every, you know, uh, people talk about how every single day you should have, try to have some type of physical, um, you know, closeness to your child. A hug, a kiss might be a little bit harder with teenage kids, but obviously when you do that when they're younger, you invest in that, then even teenagers, you know, as much as they might turn away, ma, don't embarrass me, don't hug me in front of my friends. Deep down, it feels really, really good to get that hug from your parents and, you know, to get that physical closeness. And then obviously um, later on in marriage that there would be physical intimacy. And what's very, very important to emphasize is that physical intimacy without um, relational closeness is actually very traumatizing. It's not something that feels good at all. So um, physical intimacy as part of a relationship where there's that accessibility and responsiveness is one of the building blocks to bring a couple closer together and definitely, you know, a beautiful gift from Hashem that Hashem created um, us in a way that, you know, that we should be able, like it, like it says in the Torah, that they literally become one, that the, actually the Torah says, you know, that they physically become one. So there's that beautiful element in the attachment between a husband and a wife. Okay, so what I'm hearing then is that our our adult attachment starts from our earlier childhood. Is that right? So 100% that our experience in attachment as children would definitely affect the way we, our expectations and also our readiness for our, you know, adult romantic relationship in marriage, because what's very, very important, and this is actually an interesting element, um, a difference, if you want to say, between the attachment that exists between parent and child and husband and wife, is that in, in the parent-child relationship, it's really the parent who is 100% responsible for the caregiving, for the responsiveness, for the child. You know, we don't expect a young child to be responsive to a parent's needs. That's not, you know, there's the element of kibbutz but the the idea of being responsible and accessible and caregiving is really one way in the parent-child relationship. Ultimately, you know, children can become their parents' caregivers, but as children, it's very much one way. A very, very important element of a healthy marriage would be the mutual accessibility. That there's not one person who's giving more and one person who's more responsive and one person who's more available because usually what that, not usually, what that would lead to at some point, it might not happen right away, but at some point it would lead to resentment and the person would become emotionally bankrupt. It's impossible to be emotionally responsive to somebody else, um, you know, to adults and not receive the same in return. So that's a very, very important element. And, you know, to, and I think that's where you tie in the idea of dating, where when we're dating, we have to be aware, there's a certain awareness that needs to be there that we're coming with our package. And what's very important is that um, part of attachment is perceived accessibility. 
So if somebody comes from a background where they don't have secure attachments for whatever reason, you know, there's different reasons why a person might not have developed secure attachment. Sometimes it could be, you know, the parents tried their best and still that secure attachment did not happen. So a person has to at least be aware of that when they're entering the dating and it's, it's impossible, you know, and, and, uh, I shared something later, if we could put it on the screen that I think would be helpful for people to see, but before we share it, just the idea of really, it's important that to know that yes, that mutual accessibility is so important between two adults, but it's not responsibility, meaning no adult could be responsible a hundred percent of the time for being there for another person's emotional needs. It's impossible. We really have to be able to develop an awareness of our own emotional needs. And what's beautiful about a marriage and what's beautiful about, you know, an, an, a relationship between husband and wife is that we can ask this question, can you be there for me? So not an expectation of you must be there for me. And if you're not there for me enough, the way I need you to be you become this horrible husband or this horrible wife because that's actually a sign of an anxious attachment. You're not looking at secure attachment over there. So that's not what you want to see. You don't want to enter the dating, you know, that somebody would enter the dating world and also the expectation for marriage of you better be there for me all the time. I have so many emotional needs. Uh, it's really a very open question. Can you be there for me? And Will you be there for me? And can I depend on you? And what's beautiful about the adult relationship is that there's an opportunity for healing for things that we experienced in our past. So as long as we take responsibility for our own view of self, to know where we're standing and, you know, our own model of self, to have that awareness, as long as we take responsibility and we ask another person, can you join me in my journey? And we're able to be specific and to say, this is how you could help me. Then it becomes something beautiful and healing and not something where the other person has to feel resentful or, you know, this is not something that I could keep up with. So, you know, this is a meme that somebody sent to me and I just want to give credit to the author. It says Nedra Tawab. And, you know, I've shared this many times with different people and everyone relates to it. I would say very strongly actually, because anyone in a, you know, in a marriage would know that sometimes there could be that feeling or almost that fantasy that you wish this could be, you know, you wish your husband or your wife could be able to do those things, but really it's important to remember that it's impossible. So I'll read it out loud. Even the best romantic partner will not be able to read your mind, give you what you missed in childhood, be perfect, fulfill all of your dreams, give you an identity, create meaning in your life, agree with everything, protect you from life challenges, be everything you need all the time, or heal you. So of course, that there's an opportunity for that in a marriage but it can't be the responsibility of, you know, of your spouse. It can't be that the other person that you say, you know, I entered marriage because I needed to heal in this and this way, and you have to be there for me. It has to be 
I'm on my own journey. I'm working, you know, on myself in different ways. Can you help me in such and such a way? All right. So what does that look like on a date? Like as far as two, two individual people from two different family backgrounds and different attachment, different levels of different attachment styles. How do you ask on a date, will you be there for me or can you be there for me? What does that look like? So that's a very interesting question. You know, so first of all, I think that, you know, such a question in the early stages of dating would probably make someone run very fast, very far. It's very scary. It's very overwhelming to be asked such a question by someone to say, you know, these are things that I went through. Would you be able to be there for me? So I think what's important is, and this is something, you know, I always like to look at, you know, what's my view of self? Where am I? And first of all, um, what could I, how could I work on myself so that my view of other is much more realistic? Because I don't want to enter a relationship where, you know, everything that I'm feeling and all of my emotions, I immediately attribute to the other person and, you know, essentially blame. I want to be able to say, you know, I'm feeling this way. Why am I feeling this way? You know, what is it about? And how can I help the other person understand why I'm feeling this way and possibly, you know, that I, I could ask, are they able to help me in such and such a way? So I think, first of all, what's very important at a certain point in the dating process is this idea of um, emotional responsiveness, that being able to be emotionally responsive, both to ourselves, so meaning it always starts with ourselves. So if somebody says something or someone's behavior makes you feel a certain way, do you shut down? You know, do you ignore your emotions or are you able to be emotionally responsive, you know, to your own emotions to say, whoa, you know, I feel something, I, I don't feel, you know, the way the person just spoke to me doesn't feel very right. It doesn't feel very safe. Um, you know, that story that that person just laughed about and they, they're sharing the story and they think it's very funny. I don't think that's funny at all. I wouldn't want to see that in my own home. And then being able to bring that up during the dating and to see what the emotional response would be. You know, are my emotional needs laughed at? Is the other person able to say, you know, I didn't think of that. I didn't think that maybe somebody would find that offensive or maybe somebody would be hurt by that. But, you know, now that you're telling me that, I could see that that's possibly offensive or hurtful. And, you know, I didn't, that's really something that you would want to see when you're dating. You would want to see an ability, at least for emotional responsiveness. So I. So uh, have those uncomfortable conversations, bring it up so that you can see how he responds or how she responds to your emotions. On the, hand, on the one hand, on the one hand name your emotions, have tune into your emotions and name them. And then even bigger part is to talk about it firstly for yourself, but secondly, also to see how this relationship works. Does, do they, does the other person respond in a way that feels comfortable or feels right to you? Is that what you're saying? A hundred percent. And, and the only way a person could really know what feels right, because there are many people possibly that you know, because of the family that they come from, or possibly even the community that they came from, or maybe they were very much influenced by 
a mentor. You know, sometimes it can happen where somebody develops a belief that emotions and show of emotion is essentially a lack of control and it's not a very good thing. And, you know, even in, you know, some people can misunderstand what it talks about, you know, that it's all about intellect and, you know, you shouldn't allow your emotions to, uh, you know, to overwhelm you or to overcome you. And obviously that's not what it means. You know, um, when we look about the brachas that we say under the chuppah, we talk very, very much about ava, about love, about the, the love between a husband and a wife. So obviously there's a lot of room in our lives for the concept of that a person would have control over, the, um, over their emotions. But we see very, very clearly um, from the Taira, both again, you could look at the brachas that we say under the chuppah. You could also look at so many examples in the Taira. Um, Yaakov and Rachel talks very, very clearly about the love that Yaakov had for Rachel. And, you know, there's many other examples like that in the Taira where a uh, relationship between husband and wife is 100% um, defined by expression of love, not only by love, you know, but by an expression of love. So if a person, for whatever reason, developed a belief that it's not good to be in touch with your emotions, that you need to control emotions, I would say, you know, that's something obviously very, very important to address, you know, before dating, because it wouldn't be fair for somebody else to have to um, work with that alone. It's possible that you could develop and, you know, that you could grow and you could tell someone. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I know that emotions are so important in a relationship and I but it's a little bit hard for me, you know, I'm not necessarily a person who knows how to put um, words to my emotions. It's something that I'm working on. But I think that if somebody hears that there's a desire that I want to work on that, I think that could make somebody feel safe, that this is a relationship, you know, where I would be able to have my emotional needs met. I think that's really the question that people are asking consciously or subconsciously when they're dating. Um, obviously, we want to have a physical attraction, but physical attraction is not enough. We want to be able to know, will I have my emotional needs met in this relationship? So if someone's not in tune with their own emotions, does that mean that they wouldn't be in tune with somebody else's emotions or they wouldn't know how to handle somebody else's emotions? Most likely. You know, it, it's very interesting that I would say that one of the most um, common questions that, you know, definitely I would say uh, a lot of young girls, you know, girls are asking when they're dating and boys would also ask this question is, how do I know? How do I know if they're nice? How do I know if they're, you know, the, the whole gamut of what people are looking at when they're dating. So whether it's how do I know they're nice? How do I know if they're really as firm? as, you know, what I'm looking for, or as chassidish as what I'm looking for, or as generous, whatever it is. And, you know, the answer is really, you could only know as much as you are. So, for example, if somebody is not a very polite person, and not a very patient person, if they were dating somebody, and the person that they were dating was rude to a parking attendant, or to a waiter, or... 
um, a doormat, you know, whatever it is, uh, wherever the dating is taking place, if you yourself are not in tune with that emotional need to, because it, it's really an emotional sensitivity to somebody else that I want to be polite. So, and also that I want to be addressed to, addressed as in a polite way. I want people to talk to me in a polite way. So if you don't have that awareness to yourself, that it's, you allow people if, to talk to you in a non-polite way and you yourself talk to people in a non-polite way, then if somebody next to you is talking in a rude way to a parking attendant or a doorman or something like that, you might not even pick it up. It might be something that flies right over you. So, you know, the same thing with emotional responsiveness. If you yourself don't have the ability to be emotionally responsive to somebody else, so somebody is, let's say, sharing a story about something that happened to them. And most likely, if somebody is sharing a story, whether it's, you know, your three-year-old coming home from Ghan and telling you about how nobody wanted to play with them today, you know, during playtime, and you're thinking like, whatever, it's just dolls and the kitchen set, you know, it's not the end of the world. So for that three-year-old, it's the end of the world. And the same thing during dating. You know, if somebody's sharing a story, it's because they want emotional responsiveness. So if you yourself um, don't have that ability to be responsive to your own emotional needs, you might miss it that somebody is not being responsive to you emotionally, that you share something and they're just like, oh, that's so interesting. And you just shared something really, um, you know, really personal or really uh, something that was very, very transformational in your life. And the response is very interesting. And then you would not do that for the same person. So definitely, I would say there's a lot of work to do over there. So if both of them are not responsive, are there, does that work? So that's a very interesting question because, you know, there's definitely um, differences. Let's say, uh, if you want to say the spectrum of, you know, both in the levels of attachment that what people are looking for and in emotional responsiveness. So it's interesting, you know, that like sometimes when I'll speak to a group of girls and I'll ask them, um, how many of you have an expectation that your husband will be your best friend? And, you know, not necessarily people like to raise their hands. Some people will raise their hands. Some people um, might raise their hand and deep down, maybe that's not the model that they have in the sense that maybe what they saw at home, they don't have an expectation that my husband or my wife has to be my best friend in the sense that, you know, maybe that the person that I laugh with about everything or the person that I would confide in on small details of my life. Some people have that expectation. And if they do, it's most likely something that they saw at home. And some people look at their need for attachment more on a life and death level. You know, so if I could give an example, let's say, you know, there's some people who have a need to get on the phone with uh, their husband and wife, or their husband or wife, you know, and say, oh my gosh, I, you know, I was driving home from work. I was just stuck in traffic for two hours and I'm totally stressed out, Ugh, whatever. I just had to tell you that. And, you know, get that emotional response, get that validation. And for some people, they don't see that. They don't see that, that need. And if it works for both, if 
the, you know, Gottman did this research, if people are basically in the same place as far as their um, in affect, you know, and their emotional expectations, then it can work, you know, and then there's some people in, let's say, if you look at uh, Viktor Frankl, the way Viktor Frankl described the power of human attachment in the concentration camps, and he talks about how people who had, you know, something that they were fighting for, whether it was that they thought their child was still alive, or there was someone in the camps with them that, you know, they would each make sure that the other one had food, they would save a piece of bread for their friend. That alone gave them enough meaning to survive and not necessarily was it the strongest person. So some people look at, you know, their relationship, you know, husband and wife that I want someone more on a survivor level. I want someone to be there for me for life and death issues, not necessarily for daily life issues. For daily life issues, I see myself more looking to my my co-workers or my siblings or something like that and if both of them are in the same place then it can work interesting so let's go back to the different types of attachments you mentioned that there's the secure do and then there's some other attachments styles and can we go through those quickly and the part two of that question is do certain styles work better within others with each other so i would say that um there's styles of attachment, but really there's secure attachment and then there's different styles of insecure attachment. And it's important to know what those styles of insecure attachment are when we're treating them. But really, um, insecure attachment is something that should be worked on. And it's interesting, you know, what I just mentioned about people, not necessarily is someone insecurely attached if sometimes it could be like a personality. They don't necessarily, you know, want to confide. They don't want someone talking to them about all, you know, little details. They, they want to be either very focused on their business or, you know, very focused on their home life. Not necessarily they have that need to share and still, you know, they look at the, the need for responsiveness and accessibility on more major life issues. And some people, have a need to even share, um, you know, smaller life issues. But really, I think it's important to, you know, to clarify that secure attachment, um, basically what it looks like, people who are in secure attachment, number one, have a very, very healthy view of self. So they look at themselves as lovable, as being able to be loved, as being worthy of love, which is a very, very important element. It's, and most likely that's a result of secure attachment, you know, in childhood. So that's what secure attachment looks like. They also, they don't tend to catastrophize, meaning their expectations, people who are securely attached, when they, they don't overanalyze their, you know, their husband or their wife's behavior, like, why didn't they say this? Or why didn't they do this? You know, they, they feel like, you know, I'm okay. I'm securely attached. Like I once read a story of this woman that uh, she was talking about how her husband, he's not the type to buy gifts. So she'll buy herself perfume for her birthday or makeup for her birthday. And then she'll tell him, you know, by the way, you bought me some makeup for my birthday. So, and obviously it works for her. You know, there's a lot of people who will hear such a story and they're horrified. 
You know, they say, oh my gosh, how, how could she be happy in such a relationship? How could she tolerate that he forgets her birthday, that he, so obviously, you know, to me, it sounds, I don't know this woman. I read this story. Um, it sounds like someone who's very securely attached and she knows that her husband really, really cares about her and, um, you know, that he's there for her when she needs him in the way that she needs him. And for her, you know, she's able to say, I don't mind to go out and buy, you know, myself the perfume or to buy myself the flowers. And I know that when I tell him, by the way, you bought me a present today, he'll be very, very happy. For some people, obviously, that doesn't work. But I think, you know, that doesn't, not everyone has to be like that in order to be securely attached. But I think that's, you know, that's an example of someone who's very, very securely, has a very um, secure level of attachment where I don't, I don't need, and I know that there's the language of love, there's different languages of love that some people, you know, gift giving is a language of love for them. But, you know, even if gift giving is a language of love, it could still be somebody who says, okay, even if the person forgets to buy me a gift, I know that if I buy the gift or if I remind them that it still means a lot to me because I know they really care. So that's an example of secure attachment. And then when we talk about insecure attachment, we're looking at either anxious attachment and what anxious attachment, that's one example, what anxious attachment would look like. It would look like somebody who has a need to kind of be aggressive in their need to, to remind the other person that I need that, you know, that attachment. So they might be, you know, in EFT and emotion focused therapy, we would call this person a pursuer possibly, um, you know, that they, they're really going out there and it could even express itself in aggressive ways. You know, there might be these, uh, messages in, uh, in Hebrew, uh, you call it, you know, hodaot nachas, like, uh, these like uh, really aggressive type of messaging on WhatsApp, you know, sending these long, why didn't you do this? And why did you say this? And very, um, uh, a lot of use of criticism, you know, that would be, you would see an anxious attachment. And then we also have um, basically um, avoidant attachment, which is where a person unfortunately completely gives up on being able to be securely attached and for whatever reason, they can't leave the relationship. So whether, you know, obviously in a child, um, parent-child relationship, a young child, you know, can't just get up and leave the relationship. And even, you know, in a marriage, not everybody, you know, just because they're not having the, a securely attached marriage has the luxury or even wants to just get up and leave. You know, people maybe deep down have a hope that things could get better. But what avoidant attachment would look like is really where a person detaches themselves emotionally and they try to convince themselves, I don't even need to be attached. I don't even need this person. You know, so obviously that would be insecure attachment. And then we have something that with children, it would be called disorganized attachment. And in adults, it's more referred to as fearful avoidant. And that's really where you have these, this extreme desire for closeness. And then you would also see this extreme um, expression of pushing away. So in a child, it might look like, you know, that the child clings and is really looking for, you know, screams when the parent leaves the house and, you know, really has this strong desire for attachment. And then when the parent comes over for a hug, the child might uh, push them away. 
So you might see the same thing in a husband and wife relationship where someone might make all sorts of either verbal or behavioral expressions of wanting closeness. And then when the opportunity for closeness actually comes, they push it away. And that's actually something, for example, where you might see people struggle in uh, you know, the area of physical intimacy, where they don't get the closeness and the attachment that they need you know, in emotionally. And then when it comes to physical attachment, physical intimacy, they're, even though they want it so badly, they're not there. They don't feel it, so they push away. Interesting. Does someone, uh, the fearful attachment, is, uh, uh, is that something that they can recognize in themselves as a t teenager or young adult, or does that come actually in, in the marriage? So I think that anybody you could recognize it within an attachment relationship. So you need to be, you know, and I think it's very important to um, to emphasize that not all relationships are are appropriate to be to have a full um, model of uh, you know secure attachment. You know, so let's say not every relationship is is appropriate that there would be this very very strong responsiveness or very very strong you know accessibility. You know, there's certain relationships where it shouldn't be like that. You know, and it it uh, an example of this could be let's say between a male teacher and a, you know, a female student. So that's an example where there should not be any sort of level of you know, attachment or closeness. But sometimes there's, if somebody did not get the level of secure attachment that they needed from their primary caregiver, then sometimes it could be you know, that expression that everybody needs one adult to believe in them. So you know, if it's, let's say, you hear so many stories of a teacher who basically takes a child under their wing and gives them that experience. It could be a foster parent or an adoptive parent, or sometimes it could even be, um, sorry, it could even be a friend, you know? And also I would say in a friend, um, you have to be careful, you know, that there's, it has to be a healthy level of dependency, that there should be no form of codependency um, happening. So I would say, in most cases, if it's a young person, it should be an adult. You know, it should be, not in most cases, I would say in all cases, an adult and a young person. And that a person, yes, hopefully um, is able to get that awareness before they enter the adult romantic world, before they're ready to date. I think that's very important that a person should be able to be aware. And, you know, I'll just give an example from the world of EFT, from emotion-focused therapy, which one of the beautiful things I think about this therapy is the recognition when you look at things through an attachment lens, then you're able to, um, you know, I think a lot of therapies can possibly pathologize many behaviors. You know, a person is um, either using drugs or a person is um, on their phone the whole day or a person wants to be alone the whole day or a person, um, you know, is, is uh, using very aggressive language or is very critical. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways of pathologizing. And when you look at it through attachment lens, you can basically ask the question, is the person getting the attachment needs? You know, are there attachment needs being met? And then you're able to introduce couples to the concept that possibly there's an unhealthy 
um, loop, an unhealthy, um, I'm missing the word, like yeah, an unhealthy loop that's basically exists between the couples and the couple, and then the couple can blame the loop. So for example, what that would look like is that one person has their attachment needs are not being met. And usually, you hear me? I lost you for a minute, but go ahead. Okay, so stereotypically, that would be the woman where a woman would most likely pursue. And, you know, she might be critical and aggressive in her, in her desire or her attempt to have her attachment needs met. And what that could do, that could stereotypically, again, for the male, could scare the male that I will not be able to rise to the level or I'm not good enough or, you know, I'm not able to meet your attachment needs, and then they would withdraw. And that withdraw, withdrawal behavior is inherently traumatizing and disturbing for the wife. Again, stereotypically, it would be the wife, and then she would try even harder. So that loop would continue. And when the couple is able to recognize what's happening between them, so all of a sudden they can, you know, instead of pathologizing all kinds of behaviors, we could say, okay, maybe this behavior, maybe this depression, you know, there's even relational distress. So a person could say, maybe I'm acting like that, or maybe I'm thinking like that because of what's happening in my relationship. And, you know, here's again, this, this like challenge between balancing of taking responsibility for having my emotional needs met and being able to express my emotional needs in a healthy way. And at the same time, recognizing the opportunity that exists within the couple's relationship for both of them to heal and to experience this, which is really the ultimate level of attachment because it's a much higher level of attachment that exists between the parent and child because it also includes the, the concept, you know, of physical intimacy. So it's really the ultimate level of attachment. So taking this back to people who are dating, so they should get a good sense of their if they are secure and if they're not secure. So how can they do that? So again, I think being able to walk away with a feeling that this person understands me emotionally. And it's actually very interesting that for many people, that's the... Um, if I could say the clincher, that's like the, what closes it for them. When a person says, I'm, it's yes, I feel that this person, that they get me, you know, I, uh, I know Gottman, he uses this term that, you know, do you get me? Because to be able to say to somebody, I love you, I love you is actually very easy to say, because, you know, I love you. I love what you do for me, or I love the way you are. You're a great person. But to be able to say to another person, and that person actually feels when you say to someone, I get you, I know what you're talking about, and the person feels understood and they feel seen, that's huge. And actually, there is research that shows that, you know, emotional responsiveness in newlyweds is actually a very, very strong predictor of marital happiness, you know. In, in the long-term, being able to stay married long-term. And I think it's so important for people to know at any stage, you know, anybody who's listening to this, whether they're before entering dating or they are dating or um, they, they're already married, that 
you can always work on it. That, that one of the beautiful things of the husband and wife relationship is that this, uh, your, your sense of attachment can evolve. But it has to be, it's very, very important, you know, that you could go back to that meme, maybe you want to share it, um, you know, if any listeners want it later, that remembering that, yes, within the husband and wife relationship, there's that very strong, that big, beautiful opportunity for the attachment to be formed and maintained and even revised. I think it's very important that idea that people remember that your, your, your secure attachment, your, your sense of secure attachment can be revised through emotional communication. But it's emotional communication, healthy communication always starts with a very healthy view of self where you're able to say, to take responsibility for your emotions and there's no blame and there's no criticism because that's not what healthy um, emotional communication looks like. And um, attachment needs cannot be, you know, the, the sense of secure attachment cannot be revised within emotional communication that's all about blame and criticism. All right, so uh, assessing yourself to see if you or yourself have enough enough uh, security in your attachments. Is that looking at your friendships, looking at the way you talk to your parents, your siblings? How do we assess that we're ready enough? Of course, if we're looking, looking so at ourselves. That's a good question. Yeah, sorry, that's a great question because there's many, many, you could, if somebody actually would want to do, obviously the best way, if somebody's worried, I think, you know, a person could speak to a therapist or a coach. And I think that's a great conversation to have, or, you know, a dating coach, or again, uh, a therapist, someone that, that makes them feel, um, someone who's focused on the emotional aspect of a relationship and of the person themselves. But actually, if a person just wants to get a start, there's all types of um, questionnaires online, actually, that could really give you some type of uh, clue, you know, to clue yourself in and really to start opening and asking yourself questions. Um, one of the things, you know, um, there's, a, there's a questionnaire you can find online about how differentiated I am, you know, so... When we talk about differentiated, it really, it refers to our ability to differentiate ourselves from other people's behavior, you know, from the, from other people's behavior. So instead of looking at someone's behavior and saying, oh, it's all about me, you know, they're doing that, they don't like me. You know, the reason I didn't get accepted for the job is because, you know, they didn't like me or because uh, they're, they're, um, whatever, you know, to, to blame the other person for basically something that I need to work on for myself. It is possible that in a job interview, you could experience discrimination. Obviously it's possible, but it's much healthier to walk away from, let's say said job interview and to say, you know, maybe I wasn't prepared enough and, you know, or maybe that person, maybe the interviewer was having a bad day or maybe, I really didn't give off my best self. Maybe I'm much more assertive or much more appropriate for the job than the feeling that I gave. 
So if you find yourself to be very reactive, you know, to things that happen around you, that you constantly blame other people for things that are going wrong in your life, um, that you find yourself very, very easily getting hurt by all kinds of people, meaning both in your family, in the workplace, your neighbor, maybe I, I worked on the emotional, you know, to, to, to not be so reactive. Maybe I'm way too reactive for anybody to be able to handle. It's not fair for, to have that expectation for anyone to have to handle this level of emotional reactiveness. So I'm also hearing is that same list is that when you're looking for somebody else in somebody else when you're dating, do they blame everybody? Do they ever take responsibility or do, what, where do they take responsibility for what happened? Is it the boss that there was and their friendship and their teacher and everyone else was wrong and they were never wrong? So if you're seeing something like that, then you can decide what you want to do about that. But no, but that's what you're looking for. Is there that's sense a great of point. that, you know, obviously if you were dating, it would definitely be, uh, you know, a red, uh, a red flag. If somebody, every story that they speak, you know, the, the teachers were crazy and, you know, my parents weren't good enough and my friends were not sensitive to me and, you know, so on and so forth. It might be a red flag to say, you know, can this person be open to an open, communicative, emotional conversation where I would be able to express my emotional, you know, because really what a healthy emotional conversation looks like, a healthy emotional communication is I'm able to express myself emotionally to say, this is the way I feel. And literally what a healthy communication looks like, emotional communication is to walk away with the feeling that I was seen, meaning that I was validated. That's what people are looking for. They're not looking necessarily for you to solve your, your problem because not necessarily if somebody comes home and says, oh my gosh, my boss is impossible and they, you know, and uh, he's giving us way too much work and, you know, I, uh, whatever. Yeah, that sounds very, what people really, not necessarily are they, you able to solve the problem of the boss. It might be a very good boss, you know, he might pay very fairly. But he might himself, they might be going through a very stressful time, you know, let's say in an accounting firm or, um, you know, I have a friend that she works in a designer firm. So the end of the year when they have all the sales and there's a lot, a lot of, there's a lot, a lot of pressure. So she knows that her boss is under tremendous pressure. So still she might come to me and she might tell me it's impossible. You know, my boss is under crazy pressure. My, my workplace is like a pressure cooker. So if I come to her and I say, you know, maybe you could really start thinking about what it's like to be in your boss's shoes. That's not what she needs. All she wants is to be seen and be heard. So if I say, that sounds crazy. I'm sure, you know, you can't wait for the month of December to be over. And, you know, you're going to get that week of vacation and you'll start off the new, uh, you know, the new year and things will be much calmer at the office. You know, I'm sure that's what you're looking for. And I can't wait. Let's make a date. We'll go out together, you know, for lunch or something once things get calmer. But it totally sounds nuts now. That's it. That's a great feeling. So also something that you said earlier got me thinking about the idea of looking for to see if the other person has a growth mindset. And 
not just this is who I am. I always get angry, you know, work with it or not, or things like that. So we're looking for, to see that someone's willing to grow with you and for the relationship. I just wanted to throw that back also into there. That's so a hundred percent, you know, that you, again, that feeling of somebody gets me, they get that I'm not perfect. They get that I'm working on myself. They're emotionally responsive when I bring, you know, bring up something that happened to me. They're curious. They, they really interested in, you know, what happened to me and they really, and I really think we could grow together. And, you know, I'm looking forward to strengthening. So we could really look at it through a positive, even if we had the most secure level of attachment as children, obviously we don't want to say, okay, that was a good run. You know, I had a good attachment in my childhood, whatever. It's not so important in the next chapter of my life. Obviously that's not what we're saying. So if we had this beautiful, secure attachment in our childhood, we really want to be able to say, let me make sure to continue that. I want to continue having that same level of secure, beautiful, emotional, emotionally connected level of attachment. And that will be a beautiful, beautiful setting for me to raise my children in. So just to kind of wrap that up, we're looking for in the dating to have some experiences of actually seeing that your attachment styles or your emotional, that, that the other one is responsive and that you're responsive in the way that they need to be responsive. So it's not just going through a list of a checklist. Okay, so we have a similar family, we have similar interests, or it's okay that we don't have similar interests because I'm okay with that. We're actually looking for some time of that you have experiences of seeing how you respond to each other. A hundred percent. I always uh, recommend to boys and girls who are dating. I think it's so important to share stories and to really to the why and wow, why did that happen? Because stories really, as opposed to, you know, those really closed type of questions of what are your interests? You know, what do you want in life? You know, what are your, even belief systems, these are all important things, you know, of kids, you know, and then obviously a very, very important thing about, you know, fiscal, um, you know, I always tell uh, not, I don't think it's, it's uh, healthy to marry someone who has a different relationship to money than you. That you, you did need a whole to podcast be, on talking about money. So look, so I know look out you for that one. So important. It's so, it's so amazing that you do that because... You know, but it's, that's not enough. Meaning just being aligned, you know, fiscally and just yeah. being aligned, you know, when I say fiscally, fiscal beliefs, you know, and just being aligned um, in chinuch beliefs and, you know, from kite and chassidish kite, that's not enough. You really need to have that just to see the potential. Again, you know, Hashem, you have a whole lifetime ahead of you. So you don't need to have that sense of connection of two people who were married for 70 years in order to get engaged, obviously not, but to, yes, to have that feeling, wow, this person can be emotionally responsive to me and I can be emotionally responsive to this person. And I think, like you mentioned, there's this beautiful, beautiful room for growth that there's, I think the key here is what you talk about, mutual accessibility. That's the feeling that you wanna have. I really feel like I can be there for this person and I, uh, the way, you know, the stories that I shared and the way this person responded to me when I spoke about things that bothered me, I really feel that this person could be responsive to me. That's a great, great feeling 
to be able to have, you know, before essentially when uh, you're walking to the chuppah. Amen. That's really what we're looking for. Is not the same, not the same exact interests, but really similar. I think that was a really great talk about the importance of attachment styles and to actually tune into yourself and to what's going on in the dating. So uh, thank you, Freda.